When I was growing up, I went to a summer camp every year with the YMCA. And uh, my parents, you know, now being a parent, realized why they did this. They wanted to get rid of me for the summer, only because they loved me and they didn't want me to be around them so much that they would be frustrated all summer, right? So they send us to this summer camp, and, and it was like a half-day summer camp, and most of it was outside. And we, we just had a blast. We would do all kinds of things. We would go canoeing. We'd go swimming. We'd play capture the flag, four square. I mean, we were just outside all day. You'd get worn out, come home, and go to sleep at like six. It was beautiful. And so one of the things that they had us do was we, we were taught how to, uh, how to do archery. And I knew nothing about archery. I was a little eight or nine year old kid. And here I am with the archery all set up. And, you know, they got the little stacks of hay and they've painted a bullseye on the hay. And they've got these eight year olds with bows and arrows. I would not necessarily recommend this. And all of us were, you know, in this weird tension of it seemed really cool and we were excited. We've got a weapon in our hands, but we're also terrified. How do I do this? You know, and as an eight year old, I'm thinking, I don't want to look foolish in front of these other guys. I, don't, I want to know what I'm doing. And so I pick up the bow and arrow and, and I start shaking as I'm holding it. And I'm holding it against my face, right? My, my chest is breathing deeply. I, I'm trying to you know, hold myself together, be stable. And all I can feel is the wind blowing it like this. And I'm afraid I'm going to let go of this arrow and it's going to just shoot over top of the hay or it might hit the guy next to me. I don't know. And so the, the instructor who's teaching us archery, he, he sees me kind of nervous and shaking, and he comes over and he puts his arm around me and he just says, hey, just hold still. Breathe deeply. The key to archery is just to be still, to slow down. And then he told me, just, just breathe deeply and let go. And it worked. Because stability was the key to success. He was right. And that's the key to, in most of life, right? You think about life and you think about how most of our lives work. There's this stability factor where stability really matters. I mean, it's, it's something maybe some of us take for granted that we maybe have grown up in a stable environment or, or we work in a stable environment or, or we come from a family where, where there's a stable environment. Whatever it may be, we maybe take it for granted, but stability matters and you can see it by the, the opposite, Right? You can see it by the lack of stability in our communities. You can see it when you've got young men in our community who are told their whole life that you will amount to nothing. You are less than. And you can't, you can't quantify what that does to a young man's soul and the damage it does. And the instability it creates. We see it in our community where you've got young moms who are trying to make ends meet and trying to figure out how am I going to pay all these bills and care for my kids. And, and just a few days of sickness could cost them their rent. There's this environment of instability. What's going to happen next? I mean, you feel it even in, in Lakeland's environment around the police department and racial tensions. And anytime there's, there's an instance of violence, it's immediately... uncovered the unstable environment we feel. But most of all, some of us feel it in our relationship with God. You feel this deep instability, insecurity. Can I be stable with God? Is is there a relationship available to me where, where I'm not always wondering, am I good enough? Am I close enough? Am I enough for Him, right? 
I mean, there's, there's anything, nearly anything that can knock us down in, in our relationships sometimes. I mean, just think about difficulty in your life and, and how it's affected you. Has the difficult times in your life, have they pushed you towards God or pulled you away? Have they caused you to question His goodness, caused you to question His faithfulness, caused you to question His, his sovereign control over your life because you look at your circumstances and you think, God... How could, how could this be you? And it starts to get shaky. It starts to get a little wobbly. You start to feel your breath pick up a little bit. You start to feel your hands shake a little bit. Ask yourself, what, what would stability look like? What would a secure relationship with God look like? Because I believe that the, the, the security that we long for, the, the stability that we, we long for is found in God's love. That God's love gives this unshakable security as we walk in this relationship with Him. That's what I want to look at this morning as we continue this series. We're continuing this series we've been calling On the Way. Somebody say On the Way. We're on the way, and it's a series that is... is um, is, is looking at the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are this, this grouping of psalms in the book of Psalms from Psalms 120 to 134. And this, this group of psalms was sung as the Jews were making their way up to Jerusalem. They were making this pilgrimage up to Jerusalem three times a year for the festivals. And each time in the year, all the Jews would gather from around the nation and even beyond the nation, and they would make this literal ascent up to Jerusalem. It was the city on a hill. No matter where you were coming from, you were ascending location-wise, geographically, up to Jerusalem. But it was more than a geographical move. It was actually a metaphor for their life, right? We've talked about this. That It was this metaphor that, that communicated to the people of God that you are on this journey. You are on the way upward towards me. You were on this journey upwards towards a greater relationship with me. And as they sung these songs on their way up to Jerusalem, the songs reflected what that relationship looked like. And so this morning as we look at Psalm 124, it really reflects that aspect of our relationship with God. That as we're on the way towards God, we look back and we see what he's done. We look back and we see his faithfulness. We look back and we see His love and His care and His protection and His provision. We look back and we see that this God is one who can make us stable. This God is the one who keeps us secure no matter what the circumstances may be. But as we look back, we have to begin with looking into the painful past. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want to look at everything that's come against us first. So if you're taking notes, number one, everything against us. Everything against us. Look at verse one. This is how the psalmist begins. He says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us. Now, uh, one of my seminary professors said you always have to read the beginning of the psalm where it tells you who wrote it and what, what it's about. It describes it. And we're told this is a psalm of a sense. But it was written by David. And if you know King David's life, if you know the story of King David, you know he was very familiar with adversity. You know that King David, even as a young boy, he was a shepherd boy, he would be out in the fields and he would come across a bear or a lion or some enemy that would come against his sheep and he would have to fend them off, right? 
And he didn't know at the time, but God was preparing him through that suffering and through the adversity for what he had for him next. That God had for him that he would fight against this great giant Goliath. And you know the story, right? He, de- he defeats Goliath in the face of adversity. And then from there, he, he gets promised that he would be the new king. And the, the king of Israel finds out that David has this promise on his life. And now Saul starts chasing down David. And now the adversity is coming from his own king. That he wants to take his life. And David's running for his life. And then later on in David's life, his own sons want to take his life. And so David, this man who, who is following after God comes up against adversity, and he looks back on his life. But look, he doesn't say just his own story. He doesn't just testify about what God has done. He he brings everybody else in. He says, let Israel now say. He, He says, this is not just an individual testimony. This is a corporate reality. This is a corporate psalm that's saying, I'm not going to sing by myself, basically. David's David's the worship leader saying, I'm not going to stand up here and and lead this song unless y'all are going to sing with me. And invites them in to testify to what God has done and who he is. But listen, this this idea of testify is kind of out of fashion in the church these days. This idea of of a testimony. And and it's sad because the Bible literally uh, describes it as as simple meaning. It means to give evidence as a witness. To give evidence as a witness. In other words, what what the psalmist is saying is, I'm not uh, here to defend God. I'm not here to, to be his lawyer and answer all your questions and tell you how everything lines up. And in other words, God, God's a big boy. He can be his own defender. But what he calls me into is to be a testifier. What he calls me and invites me into is to be a witness to what he's done in my life. right? To be a witness to what he has done and who he is in such a way that it becomes contagious. That other people begin to testify with me because they've seen God do stuff in their life too. You catch that? He's saying, I'm inviting you in because this is my story. This is what he's done. And he has to look back to see it. And he says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Right? He takes a look back into the past to see what God has done. And he brings out these would have been situations. Right? He he gives us four of them. Look at verse uh, 3. He begins in verse 3 giving these these would haves. In verse 3 he says, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. In other words, the psalmist is is painting a picture, a, a hypothetical picture of this is what would have happened if God didn't show up. This is what would have happened in my life if God didn't step in and do something about it. That if God didn't step in, I would have gone under the flood. If God didn't step in, I would have been under the torrent of raging waters. If God didn't step in, my enemies would have swallowed me whole. In other words, the psalmist is not talking or describing the the good life, if you will. He's describing real life. Maybe he's describing your life. He's describing what it 
what it feels like to, to come up against the, the weight of our life, to come up against the, the suffering that we face and feel like there's no way out. That if you take an inventory of all the facts, it looks as if it's certain doom. In other words, without faith, all the facts seem like failure. They seem like failure. This is what happened to uh, the Old Testament patriarch Jacob. Maybe you know Jacob's story. Jacob was the grandson of the famous Abraham. And Abraham was given this promise by God that he would be a blessing to the nations. That God would bless him and through Abraham he would bless the nations. Right? And so as the promise begins to unfold in Abraham's family, it comes to his grandson in Jacob. And Jacob is given this same promise. And, and Jacob's looking at his life and, and he's realizing, I don't know how God could say this is the promise he's going to give and this is the reality of my life. Because Jacob looked at his life and, and he looks back in the history and he sees this. He sees one of my favorite sons, Joseph, the, the one who I love dearly. One day I go home or I go to work, I come back and I find out Joseph has been killed. At least that's what my sons told me. Right? If you know the story of Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And then they found out that they couldn't go back home and tell their dad the truth. So they made up a lie and said, you know what happened to Joseph? He got attacked by this fierce animal and this is all we have left, his blood-stained coat of many colors. Jacob takes the news and, and is weeping and mourning for months, maybe years. Years go by and, and then they find out that the famine has come into their region and they don't have enough food. They don't have enough money. They're suffering. They're poor. They're broke. They got nothing. They get so desperate. They say, oh, we'll take a trip to Egypt. We'll go see if they have food. He sends two of his sons. Only one son comes back. Reuben was stuck there. So now Jacob... This man who had this great promise from God has lost one son to death. Another son, he doesn't know what's going to happen. And Jacob famously summarizes his experience through his lens of pain and difficulty. In chapter 42, this is what he said. He said, everything's against me. That was his summary. Everything's against me. It was Jacob's lowest moment. Brian Stevenson is a uh, lawyer for uh, prisoners who are on death row. Maybe you've heard of him. His bestseller called Just Mercy was recently turned into a movie, and it's still out, I believe. So if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's phenomenal. I won't ruin uh, the movie, but I, I do want to let you know, in the beginning of the movie, there's this powerful scene. And, and, and Brian Stevenson is, is a lawyer who graduated from Harvard Law School. As soon as he graduates, he moves to Alabama in the Deep South and and is uh, starting this thing called the Equal Justice Initiative. And, and they were working with clients who didn't get a proper representation while they were on death row, or before they got on death row in, in their case. And so he meets with uh, one of these guys who early on, his, his first case was Johnny D. And Johnny D. had been wrongfully accused as a black man of murdering this young white lady and and he got brought in, and his trial was, was really not much at all, and, and he got sentenced to life, and, and uh, to have his life taken, I mean, and the death sentence. And so he's sitting on death row, and he meets with Brian Stevenson. And they meet in this common area. They're sitting across the table from each other, and he sits down as this young 20-something-year-old lawyer, and he's looking this man in the eyes who's been on death row for six years, and he starts to go through his file. 
And he starts to point out all the reasons that he thinks he's got a case to get him off a death row because he thinks he's wrongfully accused. And Johnny D is sitting on the other side of the table like this. Arms folded, looking at him with just a straight face, no emotion, lots of suspicion. He lets him give his spiel. And as he, after he gets his spiel off, he responds and he just goes off on him. And he's like, you have no idea what you've got yourself in. You have no idea what it's like. And and he's looking at a man who's young, educated, successful, but naive. And he says, you you don't know what it's like to live where I live. You don't know what it's like to lose your family. You don't know what it's like to lose your future. You don't know what it's like. And then he says this. He says, I was guilty the moment I was born. Everything's against me. Everything's against me. Just like Jacob. Maybe you're here this morning and that's you. You you feel like everything's against you. You, You're going through the worst of waters right now. Everything's against you. The floods are rising. The waters are raging. All the facts of the situation seem to point to doom. All the realities that you're coming against don't seem to have any way out. There's no sign of relief or change. There's there's no hope for difference. And in your mind, it seems like it's only attacked all the time, all the time. sickness in your body just keeps getting worse. The difficulty in your marriage keeps spiraling. The pain from your past just keeps haunting you. I don't know what it is, but but it feels like the floods are getting too high and you can't rise up any further. See, there's times when we're reminded that we're not in the place that we belong. That this is not our home. It's times where maybe it's in your own life, but it's also corporately. Remember, this is a corporate psalm that we come up against evil and and it hits us. This is not our home. We come up against injustice and we realize this is not our home. We come up against things like like we've been working. We just announced in in, in uh, you know the announcements here that we're working on issues with peace, and one of those issues is affordable housing. and And you can hear the stories of people in our community. Not people in another state, another country, but people right here in our community who come up against the reality of their life that no matter how hard they work, no matter how many jobs they take on, no matter how much money they save, there's never enough space. There's never a spot for me. You get on a waiting list, there's 600 names on the waiting list. Try to find somebody who can help you out. Next thing you know, you're getting pushed out. You go to a hotel, you go to your car, you go to the streets, wherever you can. There's not enough places. And people start to ask, is everything against me? Is everything against me? And when you get in that spot, when you get in that spot, we we feel the raging waters rising against us. Even our heart can turn against us. I mean, ask yourself, ask yourself, is my heart... Drowning in fear. Because fear works by isolating our eyes. Fear works like this. Listen to me. Fear works by keeping us focused on the raging waters. And as they're rising and as they're splashing all over you and as everything seems against you, fear works like this. It keeps you focused on that. So that everything feels like an attack. Everything feels like it's going to hurt. Everything feels like it's, it's the worst. 
And you start to ask, how can I do this? How can I get past this? How can I see anything else? And the psalmist says, we have to take our eyes off of the waters and onto the wonder of a God who's for us. Right? He's saying, you, you have to take your eyes off of everything that's against you, not denying it, but saying, I'm not going to let that control me. I'm going to look at the God who's for us. And this is where he goes next, and I've got to hurry. This God who's for us. Look, look at verse 6. He says, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Right? The psalmist begins in verse 1 by framing the conversation. In verse 1 he says, there's those who are against you. There's everything that's against you. But there's also one who's for you. There's also one who's on your side. Right? He, he says, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side. He doesn't say, if it had not been for my money. If it had not been for my mama. If it had not been for my education, if it had not been for my status, whatever it is, he says, no, if it had not been for the Lord, he knows there's one source. There's one source that changes everything. There's one source that, that echoes through the, 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 the echoes of society and in our, our university that changes reality. And this is what Paul says in his famous question, Romans 8, he says, is God, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, there's something about the Lord being on your side. This is the testimony. Listen, this is the testimony of people who weren't just threatened, but they were trapped. See, the, the, the imagery gets worse as the psalm goes. It, it begins with this possibility. It begins that, oh, they may swallow us up. They may bring us under. We may go through the torrents. It, it may get like this. And then it says, no, 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 we are. Trapped. And he uses this imagery of a bird being trapped by a hunter, that it would set this trap for its prey. And it comes along, and before it knows it, it's trapped and can't get out. And the harder it pulls, the worse it gets. The harder it pulls to try to get free, the deeper it digs, the worse the hurt it gets. And then he says this the impossible happens, the snare is broken. But he says, look at it. He says, it wasn't me who did it. It wasn't us who did it. It was God himself who broke it. It was God himself who set us free that we might escape. I love that word. In the Hebrew, it literally means to to be set free, to be delivered, to, to slip through the enemy's teeth. In other words, it's this image of you're stuck in in this powerless position where you are up against a lion. You are up against a fierce enemy. And right there, you slip through his teeth. I mean, this psalm is about power. This psalm is about a God who's greater than some hunter in his, his little snare. This, this psalm is about a God of heaven and earth who can't be defeated by some hunter, some bird-catching trap. This, this psalm is about a God of heaven and earth who, who can't be defeated by your past. How could a God of heaven and earth be defeated by a government that doesn't value you? How can a God of heaven and earth be defeated by a failure in your marriage? He can't. He won't. He isn't. Right? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will break the snare to set his people free. 
And that's how fear fails. See, fear fails when we know our God is for us. Fear fails when we know our God is for us. Uh, Nehemiah had a similar situation in his time, right? Nehemiah was, was living during a dark, terrible time. Nehemiah was living at a time where Jerusalem was in ruins, the people of God were scattered about, and everybody thought it was over. Everybody thought the promise was done, that, that God had apparently forgotten about them. And Nehemiah hears about the status of Jerusalem. He hears about what's going on, and, and he says, I want to go find out. And he goes, and he looks at the city, and he examines the walls, and he sees the ruins, and it leads him to weeping. It leads Nehemiah to this brokenness over the city that he can't imagine. How could this be done to God's people? And so he comes back and he says, we've got to do something about this. And he gathers up people, gathers up hundreds of people, people from all over life, people from all over different walks of, of occupations. And he says, I want you to help me rebuild. And he gathers together this army to go back to Jerusalem. And they go back in different phases and, and they come to this place and they're going to rebuild the city. And they start on their project. And as soon as they start to rebuild, they meet opposition. As soon as they start to rebuild the city, they come up against the powerful and the wealthy who had moved into this area and had started taking advantage of the Jews. And they don't want them to succeed because they'll lose, right? And so they start mocking God's people. They start saying things like, oh, how could you ever rebuild this place? Where are you going to get your resources? Where are you going to get your help? How are you going to do this? Are you going to pray up the walls? And they start to feed this narrative that this is impossible. There's no way you can do this. And the people of God start to believe it. They start to wonder themselves, have we taken off too much? Is, is this even possible? What are we doing? Is God with us? And Nehemiah gets wind of this. And Nehemiah brings everybody together. And he says, look, let's talk about this. And he hands everybody a shovel. And he hands everybody a sword. And he says, I want you to get to work with the shovel. And I want you to fight with the sword to defend yourself. He says, but listen, this is not your hope. I'm also going to have a trumpet. And when you hear the trumpet sound from the wall, remember this. And he says this in in chapter 4. He says, our God will fight for us. In other words, take take your sword, take your shovel, get to work, defend yourself, do all that you can. But here is your hope that our God will fight for us. Not we will fight for ourselves, not we can defend ourselves, not we can get this work done, but our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. And I'm here to tell you this morning that you can't fight alone to free yourself. You can't, no matter how hard you try to pull, no matter how hard you try to struggle, no matter how hard you try to work, you are hoping that you can save yourself. You are hoping that you can deliver yourself. And the more you try, the worse it's going to get. The more you pull, the deeper it's going to dig. The more you struggle against the snare of our enemy, the worse it will get if you fight by yourself. But also there's a trumpet that sounds. There's a trumpet that sounds that says, your God will fight for you. Your God is a delivering God. Our enemy may be against us, but our God is for us. Our heart may be failing us, but our God is for us. Our fears may be overwhelming us, but our God is for us. And so fear fails when we know that God is for us. And we know it because God has proved it in His Son, Jesus. We know that He's proved it over and over that He will stop at nothing to set us free. 
We see our Savior, Jesus, mocked and and insulted by His own oppressors. We see our Savior, Jesus, making His way up Calvary Hill with the crowds, drowning Him in the flood of opposition. Crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. We see our Savior, Jesus, taking upon His body the marks of raging violence. But we also see our Savior, Jesus, upon the cross, as God Himself trapped in the teeth and the snare of sin and suffering for us. For us. He was in the snare of the cross for us. He cried out for His Father to deliver Him and was abandoned for us. He, he, he endured the raging waters of wrath for us. The greatest proof that God is for you and not against you is that he gave his life for you. What greater proof could there be? And faith is looking to him as he looks over you, as he watches over you. Faith is is taking our eyes off the raging waters to, to wonder at a God who would set the captives free. Faith is taking our eyes off the raging waters to wonder at a God who would liberate the oppressed, who would deliver the captives, who would set us free by taking our place, who would restore the broken, who would love the least people like us. And if our God is for us, and and there's nothing more sure than that, who could be against us? Who could be against us? There was a lady named Sevilla Martin, who wrote the lyrics to the famous hymn, His Eyes on the Sparrow, she tells the story of her inspiration for the song like this. She says that in 1905, uh, her and her husband were traveling, and, and they, were, they were in the area of New York, and they were meeting people and, and doing ministry, and, and they met this couple, this young, uh, actually older couple, sorry, older couple, Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle. And she tells the story saying that, that these folks were the most godly people she had ever met. But it shocked her because their circumstances looked just hopeless. Mrs. Doolittle had been bedridden for 20 years. Her husband, Mr. Doolittle, had these incurable disabilities where he had to wheel himself to and from his business that he worked at every day. And every day he would come home and from his wheelchair he would care for his wife who was bedridden. I mean, you could just stack it up against them. Everything was against them. Their, their health was against them. Their finances were against them. Their circumstances and suffering and difficulty with their family. Everything seemed to be against them. But they said, as they met with this couple and built a friendship with them, they realized they were just so full of joy. They were just so full of contentment. And they looked at their own life and they said, their suffering is way worse than mine. But they seem to be full of joy. What is going on? And so uh, her husband, as they had dinner with them one night, just brought it up and said, hey, we realize you guys have been through a lot. What is the secret to your joy? And she says she'll never forget what Mrs. Doolittle said in her simple response. She said, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And she said, at that moment, the song was born in my heart. And this is what she went home and wrote. She said, why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? A constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. 
God is for us, who could be against us? If God would die for you, how much more could he do for you? Maybe you're here this morning and the floods of fear and anxiety and worry are overwhelming your heart right now. I want to encourage you this morning that he's here with us. And he wants to meet you in that. That he's never taken his eye off of you. He's always been with you. He's always been right beside you. And this morning, maybe maybe as you're overwhelmed with that, in in a moment we're going to have a a time of prayer after after I pray and and we begin to sing. But I want to really encourage you this morning. This this time of prayer is an opportunity for you to come to God and say, "I, I just don't know how to do it anymore. The flood is so overwhelming. But I know you can do it. That if it weren't for you in my life, where, where would I be? This is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope that a Savior would come for you, that he might walk with you every step of the way. No matter the, the flood, no matter the waters, no matter the attack, no matter the enemy. He's for you, not against you. Let's go to him together.